The opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Philadelphia Talk Radio with the Middle East Forum Radio Hour broadcasting live from Beverly Hills. I find myself here on our west coast of the United States trying to do a few speaking engagements, meet with some supporters of the Middle East Forum, but most importantly, trying to find out more information for you, the listeners, and exactly what's going on in the Middle East. Having just come from Europe, meeting with some individuals who are giving me some good leads and some good rundowns on the United Kingdom's newest policy shift towards the Middle East, and also the latest headlines from all the news outlets with analysis on the top of the hour. But one thing that's particularly to take note of for this last show in 2019 that the Middle East Forum Radio Hour will be taking place. We have a rerun which will be on Christmas and another rerun of our favorite programming, from 2019 that will be taking place on New Year's. But one thing to take note of is just how much progress that this show has made. We have been able to have great guests. We've been able to have great analyses. We've added Gary Gamble, a longtime employee of the Middle East Forum, 20 years now with the organization, and also a great producer, Marilyn Stern, who's been booking top-shelf guests. But more than anything else, I'm grateful for you, the listeners. We've been able to interact on email, We've had in-person conversations. I've had you come up to us at our events at the Middle East Forum when we've put on a lunch or an assembly on Capitol Hill or a panel or a conference. And without your support and those individuals who staff the Middle East Forum, we wouldn't be able to do the programming that we're able to bring you every day. We have two very exciting guests on today. First, we have Cliff May, the founder and president of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, We'll be speaking with him about his latest article in the Washington Times and also some of the other work that FDD, as the think tank is known as, will be uh, uh, getting through. And we'll also be with Aya Berwela, a senior advisor at the Research Institute for European and American Studies and the BBC expert on women and terrorism and radicalization. But before we get to any of that, let's get to these headlines. In Syria, we're focusing on Syria, a bipartisan vote by Senate lawmakers on Tuesday, approved a $738 billion Pentagon budget, which includes an authorization for punishing new sanctions on Syria, Iran, and Russia for alleged war crimes in Syria. The 86-6 vote followed a similar bipartisan vote in the House last week. This spending bill includes legislation authorizing sanctions within six months on Syrian government officials, military and civilian leaders, and anyone else deemed responsible for mass atrocities in eight years of war. The sanctions are remarkably extensive and could target the Syrian military and Russian-Iranian contracted mercenary groups. International energy companies seeking to redevelop Syria's oil sector could be a target as well. And any company that provides parts for aircraft, helicopters, jet fighters, and even entities that loan money to the regime could be sanctioned. Now, why is this an important piece of legislation? It's not that the crimes in Syria have gone unanswered. We have seen the global coalition against ISIS take out most of the leaders of non-state actors that were there. But there has to be a refocus of the shift of international attention, and specifically policy mechanisms which go towards the regime. Bashar al-Assad, 
has been able to survive for the past eight years, almost nine years now, since the mire of the Syrian civil war started, by being largely propped up by two allies, Russia and Iran. Now, that was during the height of the fighting. <clears throat> there was also Lebanese Hezbollah support, Iraqi militia support, support from other foreign fighters in Afghanistan and in Pakistan, the Shia minority communities there. But what's really of note here is that now that most of the fighting is over, at least the intense fighting, maybe outside of Idlib province, where the last bastion of rebel support lies, being backed by Turkey and a few other Islamist, Sunni Islamist regimes. How does Syria get rebuilt? What seems here is, is that the United States, its House and its Senate, and we know that the president is going to sign off on this. It's included within authorization language that's a must-pass bill. The Pentagon budget, the National Defense Authorization Act, must pass. So this legislation will be put into law. The post-conflict Syria reconstruction, which will be taking place, now gives this president or a future U.S. president, if this president chooses not to act, with this new menu of sanction options that he has, will be able to help dictate U.S. policy from afar in the way in which Syria is rebuilt, conditioning it, conditioning the use of the U.S. financial system, conditioning the participation of private companies and other semi-state-owned entities, think Total, the French oil company, think Russian companies that want to get involved with this, Think any European company that hopes to be able to, after a decade of missing out on business in war-torn Syria, help in its reconstruction, a venture alone, which promises to be a hundreds of billions of dollar affair, must make sure that the regime holds the perpetrators of the genocide, of the war crimes, of the mass torture, mass disappearing, and every other crime which the international community will find those Syrians responsible for through whatever mechanism is set up for a post-conflict Syria. But that's the thing. Only one country, Germany, has charged two former junior officers of the Syrian Arab army with war crimes. They're standing now under this idea of universal, universal jurisdiction, the idea that a country can hold another country's potential or accused perpetrators of war crimes if the country in which they came from does not have the justice system or the will to be able to meet out justice for those war crimes. So where do we go with this? We have this sanctions bill, as NPR reported. They are now within the repertoire of American arsenal to be able to use against the Syrian regime. But I don't know how this is going to bring Assad to account. Until there is a political leader in that country that's willing to push for reconciliation. And I do think that that is still a, a potential avenue. I mean, yes, the regime won the war. But there are dozens of countries which still oppose the actions that it took. And so long as the global coalition against ISIS, nothing to do with efforts to fight back against Assad. But that, that coalition was put together to maintain an iron wall against 
a non-state actor, if that entity could be shifted to now being asked to hold Assad to account, call it phase two of post-ISIS, post-Civil War Syria, that might be a good mission for it to continue its legacy in terms of bringing peace and reconciliation and justice to the victims of the Syrian Civil War. Not to finish this on a light note, but in also in, the, in uh, the northwest province of Idlib, Syrian government and Russian airstrikes killed at least 17 people on Tuesday in rebel-held Syria, and a spike of casualties from a relentless daily strikes in re- recent months, witnesses and rescuers said. More from that on Reuters on the bottom half of the hour. We're going to go to a break, and we'll be joined by Cliff Smith. The intellectual backbone of American Middle East studies has provided a rationable excuse for individuals trying to promote an anti-American agenda. We see that those individuals who are in Islamic studies and American Middle East studies programs at some of the most major American universities find themselves justifying the behavior of America's enemies overseas and promoting domestic threats that harm us here at home. If you want to go and learn more about Campus Watch, the Reader's Digest of American Middle East Studies, Check us out on Campus Watch at www.campus-watch.org. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other, for our nation, for us all. The few, the proud, the Marines. And we are now joined by someone who I've had an immense amount of respect for since I've been following his career in the think tank focus on security affairs space for the last 18 years from when I was a junior in high school until now where I have the privilege of reading his columns and understanding them just a little bit more by virtue of also being involved in the think tank community. Clifford D. May is the founder and president of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, a nonpartisan policy institute focusing on national security created created immediately following the 9-11 terror attacks. Under his leadership, FDD has become one of the nation's most highly regarded think tanks and a sought-after voice on a wide range of national security issues. Those issues we hope to ask him about today. Cliff, welcome to the program. Thanks, Greg. Good to be with you. So let's get right into it. You wrote this article in the Washington Times, I think today, it appeared this morning or yeah, maybe yesterday. this morning's paper, yeah. Um, anti-Semitism and uh, Corbyn's devastating loss, but also focusing more on the uh, executive order that was passed by the president last week. I I, I don't want to uh, speak about domestic politics per se, since we are focusing on the Middle East. 
But I want to kind of parry this to another place, which is the focus on what you call the stunning rejection of Jeremy Corbyn, the party leader who has called members of Hamas and Hezbollah his friends. And what does this mean now for UK Middle East foreign policy? We, we've had the rejection of the Labour Party platform, which would have immediately had ceased UK arms sales to Israel and the potential recognition of a state of Palestine. I put that in quotation marks. What does this mean for the Tories' foreign policy and for its relations with Middle Eastern states? Well, look, this has meaning. It's not huge meaning. Part of what I, I, I try to argue today is that anti-Semitism is an ancient and uh, shape-shifting pathology. And those of us who want to fight anti-Semitism, the anti-anti-Semites, should recognize that this is a forever war. Uh, anti-Semitism is not going away. We're not going to cure this pathology. It can, however, be treated. Um, the reason I mentioned the EO, um, and just very briefly, in this regard is because what President Trump did is to say anti-Semitism is rampant on American college campuses. As the laws are now interpreted, Jews are not protected as other minorities are. This executive order says Jews also should be protected as are other minorities facing discrimination. Jeremy Corbyn is anti-Semitic, uh, quite blatantly so, quite obviously so. He was rejected, I think, not primarily because of his anti-Semitism. This was, I, I think we know, mainly a vote for Boris Johnson, who said, let's get on with Brexit. Let's get this done. It's been three years. It's enough talking about it. And they said, yes. I hope to an, an extent it was also a rejection of socialism. Jeremy Corbyn is a socialist. And I, I hope that people in Britain thought, no, we don't want to go back to that. That means uh, every all of us become poorer fewer less opportunities for everyone. We don't want that. But not having, but Jerry Corbyn has not resigned yet. He will. He won't be leader of the Labor Party. He won't be prime minister. That's good news. But here's what is important to recognize. Well, British Jews who had been leaving the Labor Party, and some of them were packing their bags to, to go elsewhere, to Israel, the United States, Australia, somewhere they feel safer, that they, they, can, they can now unpack. Nonetheless, for, there was a report prepared by what's called the uh, Jewish Labor Movement, and it was submitted to Britain's Equality and Human Rights Commission. And it details what it calls relentless anti-Semitism within the Labor Party still. So this is not over in Britain by any means. Right. That said, Boris Johnson's policies will be much friendlier to Israel. He, I believe they're already talking about an anti-BDS resolution of law, understanding the extent to which BDS, this campaign to boycott, divest, and sanctions Israel, is based and is uh, on anti-Semitism and is fundamentally anti-Semitic in its intent. Boris Johnson seems to understand this. So it's, you know, this is good news. I say these, both of these are both battles won in this, uh, in this endless war against this very specific uh, brand of bigotry. Right, and, and, and I see that as reflected in your column. I mean, if we want to sort of create two prototypes right now for types of politicians that I have, that I would argue have responsible policies towards combating anti-Semitism, and then on the other hand, promoting a responsible foreign policy towards the Middle East. Um, Johnson has, and I, I just got back from Westminster yesterday, so mm -hmm. I, uh, I, I did that, you know, 
during the day flight rather than the red eye flight, London to Los Angeles. And and there was some conversations uh-huh. going on and, and, and some uh, op-eds in the Times. Um, there was going on in the Evening Standard News. There was another one which appeared in Daily Mail, all saying that there is now certainty or, or, or a, a level of certitude which has returned to English, British, UK policy making where no one knew what was going on with Brexit. No one knew how to exactly root out anti-Semitism from within the labor movement, like you pointed out to that Jewish labor movement report that came out in September. Um, but but back to policy, there's two prototypes, I think, of global politicians and how they deal with Middle East policy. You have Trump, you have Johnson, you have, to a certain extent, I think, uh, Matteo Salvini, you have other uh, uh, individuals, perhaps Viktor Orban in Hungary, you yes. have a new prime minister of London, excuse me, not of London, of, of Australia, who just came in a few months ago. And they've all said the Middle East is a place that we have to engage with. But then this is where they have a little bit of, of, of a different take on it. They say we have to engage with it in order to prevent its quibbles and its troubles coming to affect us here at home. Now, if you have a Jeremy Corbyn, he's saying well, there's no problem in the Middle East. It's okay for Iran to have power. It's okay for Syria to project itself. We have to recognize Hamas. That's one interpretation which is completely different, I think, from any responsible policy. That's an irresponsible policy. Vladimir Putin, irresponsible. But when it comes to the politicians that I mentioned previously, they both reject anti-Semitism and the, uh, you know, like you called it, a pernicious form of hatred, a shape-shifting Hatred that does not have any way to extinguish itself. It can't go extinct. It always, generation after generation, millennia after millennia, finds a new way to rear its ugly head. But the policies of Johnson and of Orban and of Trump, uh, yes, they have their marked differences. But there's this one common theme, which is that we recognize that there's a right for Jews to live over there. And beyond the Israel question, we recognize we have to engage with the region with actors that are defending our side, which have a commonality of anti-Iran, um, anti-Shia uh, uh, extremist, anti-Muslim brotherhood. How, how do you characterize this sort of common thread, if you believe there is one, between these most recently elected leaders in the last two, three years in their common shared view of the Middle East? Well, there are, I think there are two important aspects to it. One is the recognition that among the enemies of free nations are the various regimes, movements, organizations, and ideologies that I would characterize as jihadist or Islamist, radical Islam. There are various terms people prefer, and we can discuss why. But I think we should know what, what they mean. The Islamic State obviously is committed to a jihad against the West, but the Islamic Republic of Iran is no less committed to that. People like Foreign Minister uh, Zarif, Javad Zarif, uh, is more forkable, if you if you would permit the word. In other words, you can go to a restaurant in Vienna and know which fork to use. But he also believes in a jihad against the West, um, and he be- and he is a neo-imperialist for the Islamic Republic of Iran. I always say Islamic Republic of Iran because I think the Iranian people, by and large, I, I think there's some evidence for this. Um, are as fed up with Islamist and theocratic government as any people in the in the world are. I think you can see that from the protests that recently broke out, demonstrations in more than 100 cities, at least a 1,000 people we believe to have been murdered by the regime. 
people are fed up with it, with with what they've experienced since 1979, uh, when the when the the, the 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 ruling class of Iran became the religious class of Iran and a specific segment of the of the religious class, not all of the imams and mullahs uh, in Iran believe in Khomeinism, which is a very aggressive form of. Of, of, of Shiism and imperialism, the, the Islamic Republic means and is in the process of taking over uh, Iraq and Syria. They pretty much have Lebanon is ruled by Hezbollah, which is absolutely their proxy. They're supporting Palestinian Islamic Jihad in Gaza, as well as to a lesser, somewhat lesser extent, Hamas. They're supporting Houthi rebels in Yemen. It's pretty clear what they intend to do in the region. Um, and there are those, uh, the leaders you mentioned, who I think recognize this threat and want to frustrate it. And there are others, and I'm uh, sorry to say, included President Obama, who said, no, I think that, you know, the Saudis and the Iranians just need to share the Middle East. And he didn't seem to be terribly worried about the Israeli position within that, or the Jordanian position, by the way, which also threatened. Um, so I think right. that's, this, a, this that, that, that's very much the, part of it. Yeah. Equilibrium of powers, which uh, doesn't matter which ideology you have, as long as your power is equal to someone else, it offsets the potential of conflict. That was the false yeah. uh, narrative and false policy prescriptions of Obama. But I, I do want to get back for a second to the common foreign policy threats of these actors that we mentioned beforehand. Yes, Iran is the 800-pound gorilla in the room, but there seems to be a little bit of a, of, of a, of a different take when it comes to a, another power, which is, I think, not necessarily equally as demonic as the Iranians, but as equal in its quest for neo-imperialist, or in this case, neo-Ottomanist ambitions. Uh-huh. <laughs> why, why does uh, there exist a united front against Iran? Yet when it comes to Turkey and its misbehavior, Trump seems to be coddling it. Uh, and I'm not entirely sure why that is. A lot of uh, look, uh, Turkey is, is a very interesting and, and as they say, wicked problem, hard to solve. Why? Because well, it's, uh, Turkey is a NATO ally, but it is not. Uh, it is a least reliable ally within NATO. Of course, Turkey also has the second largest military within NATO. The first being the United States. I think there's a feeling right now um, of frustration. What do you do? Uh, if you uh, should Turkey be in NATO, obviously not. On the other hand, one, there's no mechanism to eject Turkey from NATO. Two, if you do, are you not throwing Turkey even more into the arms of Putin's Russia? Um, there's been a, a substantial rapprochement between Putin and between uh, between President Erdogan of Turkey. Those countries, for a very long time, were rivals and adversaries. And now they seem to have found common cause, perhaps based on the fact that both are led by authoritarians. Um, Turkey does have much wider designs. Turkey is a problem. It just I think nobody knows quite what to quite, quite what to do about it. Um, I think I, I, those of us at FDD, where our, our Turkish portfolio is led by uh, Icon Erdemir, who's a former parliamentarian in Turkey, and uh, cannot go back. I should uh, I should make clear he'd be he, he'd be arrested immediately. It's so, an uh, indictment out for him. Um, the the question is what can be done about about Turkey? And I think we're all struggling with with that at this point. But we should at least one thing we're trying to do is, is just reveal how bad Erdogan is in terms of freedom, in freedom of the press, uh, in terms of uh, all the things he's doing in the meddling in the region. 
why President Trump seems, and by the way, all of his predecessors seem to believe that they could get along with him and work with him and that he was, he was in some way their friend. Again, part of it is tradition and history and the fact that Turkey used to be considered the secular and pro-Western country in the Middle East. It obviously straddles the Middle East and Europe, but, it, but again, it remains a wicked problem. So, so we, we have these foreign policy prescriptions. Iran is bad. Turkey, I'd say most of the European countries are more anti or, or most of the leadership of European countries end up being more cautious or even to the extent of Emmanuel Macron in uh, France, anti-Erdogan. Um, Trump is the exception within NATO of trying to cajole it back into the uh, you know, warm embrace of the alliance, maybe as a way to get against Putin, maybe as a way to try to, to balance items out there. But they, they largely stare, share their, their cautious behavior towards them. But now a third country comes up in what was once a common approach to Iran, uh, to Turkey, uh, at least holding them to account. Yes, they defer on whether there should be a tactics in terms of giving exceptions to sanctions or, or whatever else. But generally, Iran bad, Turkey getting there. Uh, third country in that axis, which FDD has written about extensively. You had a conference on this subject, I think, a year and a half ago, um, almost two years ago now. And that's the financier for the Turks, the small peninsular state of Qatar. <laughs> and you have significant American air assets there at Aludate Air Force Base. You have a robust lobbying operation from the Qataris in the United States. They have they, they have uh, many investments in Europe, whether it be football teams or Harrods or whatever other commercial prizes they have. But there's also been significant pushback against them, especially in light of the human rights abuses with the World Cup coming up. You had the GCC countries eject Qatar. But all of a sudden, in the last week or two, there's a report in Reuters which described the Qatari foreign minister's description of the detente or the rapprochement between the Saudis and the Qataris. What's happening there? Well, Qatar is, a, Qatar is an interesting, tiny little country with a lot of money, as you know, as you know uh, through oil and gas. It's always kind of played both ends against the middle, uh, kind of like a, a, a country that's in, in a way a hedge fund. In other words, it, it bets on all. It has enough money. It just bets on all the horses, figuring one of them will win and therefore it will win too. It, it is, of course, uh, Sunni and really Wahhabi, but, and, and yet the, the the break with with the Saudis has been substantial and. There, there's talk of uh, of detente, but I'm not sure I, I believe it. Um, but part of what has made the Saudis so angry and the Emiratis, United Arab Emirates as well, has been both the flirtation between the Qatari uh, ruling class, which is a family, and both the 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 Islamic Republic of Iran and and and, and Turkey as well. And uh, as you say, the Qataris also. Uh, they do a very good job uh, of influence buying other places, including in Washington, D.C. They they uh, spend a lot of money at a lot of think tanks. There are think tanks in Washington, quite a few of them that take foreign money. I should say FTD does not. Um, but others do. And uh, they say, well, that doesn't influence us in any way. I, I, I still think it, it presents an appearance of compromise because Qatar also is a regime that sponsors terrorism uh, in various places. Um, 
it, 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 it is a, it's a complex piece of the of the equation. And as you say, also not least because we have military assets based there. The Qataris recognize how useful that is for them. And, and, and I see that. But in, in your opinion, why are the Saudis talking to them? Well, look, the Saudis would love to bring them back into the fold of what's called the Gulf Cooperation Council. In other words, the various Gulf states, uh, all of which are, are, are Sunni, should be and used to be to an extent on the same page. And they do face an existential threat. And I, I, I don't use that word lightly from the Islamic Republic of Iran. There's, there are two ways to deal with an existential threat. One is you face it and confront it and, 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 and deter it. The other is you say, well, what's the best deal we can work out so you let us live? And again, I think the Qataris have been more the latter. Let's work out a deal so we're not threatened by uh, Tehran. Uh, the, the Saudis are more likely to say there, there is no deal we can work out with Tehran. Uh, they think we're usurpers. They think we should not be controlling the, uh, the holy cities of Mecca and Medina. They think that we uh, oppress the Shia Arabs in eastern Arabia, which is where most of the oil lies. We can, there's no way we can work it out. Now, if, now, there's two things going on that are interesting there. One is that the Saudis have forever, really, certainly since World War II, relied on the U.S. as, uh, or before that, Britain as their protector. If they feel that the U.S. is no longer re a reliable protector, they have only two possibilities, really. One is, again, to try to find some way to work out a modus vivendi with the Islamic Republic so that the Islamic Republic turns its attention to others. The other, of course, and this has already happened, is the Saudis look to Israel with a very different eye. Uh, I think at this moment, the, the Saudis do not at all want to erase uh, Israel from the Middle East. Um, they recognize that, unlike the United States, the Israelis have nowhere to go. And the Israelis are the only nation in the Middle East that has both the will and the determination, has the will, the determination and the military capabilities to confront, to face, to deter uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran. So under, you know, very quietly, there have been extensive relations between the Saudis uh, and, the, uh, and the Israelis on the intelligence level, on the military level. Uh, and Israeli put it in a funny way to me. He said, well, you know, they, they, they're certainly attracted to us, the Saudis, <laughs> but it's more like it's more like a mistress than a wife. They'd rather not be seen in public with us <laughs> to go to small out-of-the-way out of restaurants to, to have drinks. Well, Cliff, listen, it's uh, 10.30 now. We've got to cut this short, but I really want to thank you for joining in one of our last interviews for 2019. It's a pleasure having you on the broadcast. If you could just give us 30 seconds on FDD and how people can read more about your work. Uh, FDD.org is, is, is the website. Uh, all our columns and our reports and publications will, will be on there. Uh, my columns appear every Wednesday in the Washington Times, uh, both online and in the print edition. And as you say, we were early, you're just quite correctly, we were formed just after the attacks of 9-11-01. Uh, Amazing to me that was 18 years, years ago. And it's a pleasure to be with you, Greg. And uh, give a shout out to Jonathan and Toby. Jonathan, we have a tremendously good crew there. Uh, Jonathan Shanzer, who also worked with Daniel Pipes in, in years past, and Daniel, I consider a friend and colleague of long standing. So I will give a shout out to him and to Toby Dershowitz as well. All right. Thank you. And ha have a great holidays and, and a happy new year. Same to you. After these messages, I will be joining us. 
Fascism was a danger to American interests in the early 20th century, communism in the last half of that century, and in the 21st century, we find our new ideological enemy, Islamism. Islamist Watch argues that violence is not the only or even the best way to apply Islamist ideas in Western liberal democracies. Islamist Watch monitors and exposes the growing influence of non-violent radical Islamist groups in the West while empowering moderate Muslims. Radical Islam is the problem. Mainstream Islam is the solution. Read more at www.islamist-watchwatch.org or check us out on Twitter at Islamist Watch. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. My dad came to live with us last month, and you know... It's going pretty well. I feel like I never have time for myself. With him being around more, it really lets us catch up on things. His memory isn't what it used to be. We get up and we have coffee. He usually wakes up at 4.30. Then we go for a walk. He needs lots of my attention. I do need to keep an eye on his medications, though. That's important. Sometimes I feel like a pharmacist. I'd say John and the kids are adjusting pretty well. They honestly have no idea what I'm going through. It can be a little challenging. Help, but so far, so good. I could really use just a little help. For those dealing with the daily struggles of caring for a loved one, we hear you. That's why AARP created a community with experts and other caregivers for advice, tips, and support. Together, let's help each other better care for ourselves and the ones we love. Visit aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Oh, yeah. Okay, it's off. Aya, are you with us? We'll be joined by our next guest in just a little while while we try to figure out some uh, technical issues with adding her on the Skype. Uh, it's always complicated, of course, to be able to try to get two guests, one from uh, Greece, and then we have another one from the United Kingdom, one from Washington, broadcasting out of a studio in Los Angeles all transmitting back for our Philadelphia audience to have the opportunity to hear. But in the meantime, I'd like to reflect a little bit on what we have coming out of the conversations that we had just had with Cliff May. And I want to correct myself since Cliff was um, uh, uh, somewhat or, or, you know, rather on the other side, uh, um, uh, talking about this new evolution of foreign policy. One of the greatest gifts, I think, to Western Middle Eastern policymaking 
is the election of Boris Johnson to a five-year term in the United Kingdom. People are focusing on Brexit. They're focusing on the battle against uh, the Labour Party's anti-Semitism and now the defeat of Jeremy Corbyn and what that means in terms of the people who might be coming after him. But what I really think is also important to focus on is, as I mentioned in the interview with Cliff, the amount of certainty that we now will have and the ability for us to, to move beyond just this sense of, of what it is that the United Kingdom has been mired in for the last three and a half, four years. The resignation of David Cameron, the ascension of Theresa May, and now finally we have this election of Boris Johnson. And we'll see really what that portends, not just for the European Union, Brexit, the US-UK relationship, but the wider question of how will the UK engage in its foreign affairs in the area that I'm the most interested in. And I think you, as our listener base, is exactly how does it reorient its foreign policy under Foreign Secretary Jeremy Rabb and the now certain Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Aya Berwela is a senior advisor at the Research Institute for European and American Studies and a BBC expert on women and terrorism and radicalization. Born in Benghazi, Libya, she holds a Certificate in Terrorism Studies from the Center for the Study of Terrorism and Political Violence at the University of St. Andrews School of International Relations, and several other certificates focusing on conflict analysis and interfaith conflict resolution from the U.S. Institute of Peace, with further degrees from the University of Laverne and the University of Indianapolis. She is an expert on Islamic fundamentalism, and her writings have appeared in the International Journal for Intelligence and Counterintelligence the Oxford Law Society Journal, the Jerusalem Review of Near East Affairs, and the China-U.S. Focused Journal. Ayo, welcome to the program. Hi. Thank you for having me. This is an extensive resume. You have work that has appeared all over Europe, all over the United States. Your focus is on your um, hometown, I think, or, or the home country of Libya. And, and I have to share something with you before we begin the topic matter. My wife's grandmother was also born in Benghazi. Oh, wow. Um, this is <laughs> back incredible. Of, this is back in the time of King Idris. Uh, incredible. Before Gaddafi, she was a member of Benghazi's uh, Jewish community that then um, uh, left for Italy and the United Kingdom and the United States. And, and in this case, my wife's grandmother, who's still with us today, um, uh, moved to uh, Tel Aviv. In Israel, so it's 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 nice to be speaking to uh, to someone with a, a, a mutual heritage, I guess, or, or mutual birthplace from someone on, on the other side of my family, and and maybe before we begin uh, talking about Libya, Qatar, uh, some of the other issues that I want to focus on, what was it like growing up in Gaddafi's Libya? Uh, well, I didn't have a chance to uh, grow up in Gaddafi's Libya. I've always uh, lived abroad. Uh, okay. So I can't answer that uh, in that context. But your uh, family, friends, how did they describe the the pre-Libyan uh, Revolution Libya under Gaddafi's rule? What was it like? If you can well, share. Well, I think from I think from um, in the beginning, uh, he was a revolutionary, and there were, uh, a lot of important changes were made uh, to Libyan society and education and women's rights. Uh, but it, as it is in most situations uh, where power is concentrated in one individual, at some point, uh, it just got worse for everybody, uh, especially after the uh, late 1980s and early 90s. 
Uh, so in the beginning, uh, there were a lot of social changes that were made that were positive, uh, but then it became more uh, totalitarian and difficult for Libyans uh, within and outside Libya. Yeah, I, I, I think speaking as an American, the introduction of something called the, the Green Book, which was sort of Gaddafi's, you know, uh, 10 rules for living, <laughs> you know, look at mm -hmm. that, or, or the way in which the uh, country should have ruled would mm -hmm. have been an early indicator of his, you know, downward spiral, spiral to, towards uh, totalitarian uh, dictatorship. But, you know, sometimes with the introduction of a revolution, you have maybe, you know, access for women's rights and, and, and the ability, but, but it's being done as a mm -hmm. way to consolidate power. And we all saw what happened to him. The, uh... One of the uh, one of the problem one of the policies that uh, aren't discussed uh, very much when when we discuss today violence in Libya is uh, certain policies uh, real estate policies that uh, Gaddafi uh, uh, enacted in the late 70s, uh, which expropriated private property uh, from Libyans, and uh, to this day uh, this has caused uh, violence uh, and dispute among Libyans. Uh, who are trying to win back uh, their properties that was uh, lost under uh, laws like that by Gaddafi, uh, which was very much anti-entrepreneurial, uh, anti-private property, and all that. So after 2011, when everybody found themselves, when there was total arms saturation, one of the first things people wanted to rectify uh, was getting their properties back. So moving uh, beyond this to, to sort of more modern mm -hmm. times, you and John Nomikos write mm -hmm. the... International Journal of Intelligence and Counterintelligence, published by Rutledge, and it just mm -hmm. uh, it looks like this year, twenty nine. Mm -hmm. this, this is your most recent publication, at least the most extensive publication. Mm -hmm. In an article titled "Libya and the New Axis of Terror: Reshaping mm -hmm. the Security Theater in MENA, Middle East, North Africa, and Europe," I want to read the first line or two, and then maybe ask you a few more in-depth questions as it relates to this article, and also how you see Libya transitioning from uh, post. Qaddafi era to now this break between these um, Turkish Qatari UN backed forces in, in, in Tripoli mm -hmm. on the, uh, the, 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 the west of the country. And then also with Benghazi and Khalid al-Haftar, the, the marshal, mm -hmm. he likes to call him. Mm -hmm. so start off with, with this, um, this article. You write the ex exponential expansion of Islamist groups in both numbers and geographic scope to Libya and Syria between 2011 and 2017, and the subsequent refugee crisis that sparked has led to a rapidly deteriorating human security theater in the Middle East, North Africa, and the European Union. And you give one statistic, which I think is, is particularly apt to point out. To illustrate the renaissance of violent Islamist movements in radicalizing and recruiting youth, during September of 2011, Al-Qaeda's army in Libya consisted of around 400 fighters. By 2017, the Islamic State's army had alone ballooned to 40,000 fighters, with which roughly 6,000 came from Western Europe. And then you go on and talk about how, you know, not just in Libya, but in, in most post-Arab or, or post Spring uh, countries, the, the amount of non-state actors and their forces available to them really ballooned. Uh, mm -hmm. What's going on now in Libya since the now, I guess it's been eight year downfall of Gaddafi. Mm -hmm. uh, well, what we definitely see is that uh, we see an increase uh, in terrorist activity. Uh, they did enjoy a renaissance in the past eight years. Uh, we have Iraq and then we have Syria. We have uh, Libya. Uh, we have three failed or failing states that have become safe havens uh, for terrorist activity. After 2011, uh, Libya was one of these uh, theaters. Uh, in fact, 
uh, in Benghazi in the east. We had uh, an entire catalog of terrorist acronyms uh, in the city and in the east. Uh, and it was only until recently uh, that the Libyan National Army was able to uh, remove them from the east. We had Ansar al-Sharia, we had al-Qaeda affiliates, we had ISIS. Uh, so what we saw, uh, uh, Libya becoming uh, uh, one of these dangerous uh, states and ha uh, havens. Uh, one of the things contributing to this, uh, obviously, uh, the NATO intervention was ill-conceived. Uh, there was never a, a day-after plan. And uh, this is very, very dangerous. This is dangerous uh, to Libyans, and it's dangerous to its uh, neighbors. So we saw a uh, large-scale military intervention. We saw a lot of arms uh, falling into the hands of Islamist groups, and no, uh, no plan what to do. Uh, uh, in the day after. So we saw hundreds of militias, uh, terrorist groups flocking to Libya, uh, kind of became like a Woodstock of uh, terrorists internationally. Uh, in, indeed. Town armor <laughs> in the Middle East is now Gaddafi's old arm spares. So. Exactly. What we saw, what we saw, and if you see uh, uh, the journal article, uh, there wasn't only um, uh, these uh, uh, Gaddafi arms not only fell in the hands of uh, domestic terrorist groups and militias, but they were also funneled uh, along with fighters uh, to the Syrian theater. Uh, so we saw a, a really chaotic scene in Libya and something that Libyans have been struggling with. One of the problems was that after uh, uh, the killing, murder of uh, Ambassador Stevens, uh, the United States kind of backed off uh, from being involved uh, in the security scene in, in Benghazi. And after that, after the killing of uh, uh, Mr. Stevens, Benghazi really fell to militias, uh, different types of militias. And in around 2000, in March 2015, there was an official ceremony uh, where the uh, elected parliament of Libya appointed uh, General Khalifa Haftar to build up the Libyan National Army again and to fight and expel these militia and terrorist groups. And uh, Libyans have been fighting ever since. Okay, so they, they've been fighting, but also they've invited several state actors to start getting involved in the fight. You have, um, I think on one hand, I heard this, and we've talked about this on this program before, but please clarify, uh, mm -hmm. uh, add, uh, uh, disprove myths that I might be bringing up right now in terms mm -hmm. of the alliances. There are um, Qatari-backed Turkish mm -hmm. pilots in Malta, or potentially in Tripoli, who are flying tr Turkish drones that are attacking uh, Emirati and Egyptian and other, um, let's call them, uh, autocratic uh, Sunni moderates, maybe moderates is the wrong word mm -hmm. to use, but those forces that are backing Haftar and, and their uh, groupings, which are consistently, constantly trying to take on Tripoli. They're trying to march from Benghazi to Tripoli. They get beat back, they go again, they get beat back, they go again. But that's just sort of an anecdote of the larger issue here, which is Turkey and Qatar's backing of the Tripoli government. What, what, what's going mm -hmm. on with that rift between Haftar and the others? Okay, um, I'm, I'm gonna give uh, some context to the conflict that we see today and the Tripoli offensive. Uh, this conflict is not new. Uh, it has roots, uh, I would say, uh, if we want to go to the most recent roots where this conflict was midwife, I'd go back to 2014, uh, where Libya had its uh, uh, last democratic elections. And in these democratic elections, uh, the Islamists lost. And rather than accept the results of the elections, uh, they decide to fight the elected parliament, uh, known as the House of Representatives. 
Uh, so this is where you see uh, Operation Dawn, Fajr Libya. Uh, they started uh, attacking uh, the parliament and forcing it to move to the east. So when you hear things like uh, the Tripoli, uh, the eastern-based government or the um, Tripoli-based government, this is a misnomer. There is only one parliament for all of Libya. Um, that is an elected parliament, and it is the only parliament that is internationally recognized. So what we had after that, so 2014, we had this uh, fighting breaking out uh, where groups supported by Qatar and Turkey uh, refused to accept uh, the elected parliament. And this is where we see uh, the split happening. In addition uh, to imagine, so you have these militias fighting, and in the background, having at the same time ISIS and other international jihadist groups uh, fighting and trying to uh, set up a base in Libya. So there's one international parliament, and this is the parliament uh, that the LNA, the Libyan National Army, uh, operates under. So it's not, you see a lot of journalists, and this is kind of a tell uh, that shows how familiar writers are with what's happening in Libya. Uh, Khalifa Haftar is not self-styled at all. He was appointed uh, by the parliament uh, to head the Libyan National Army, to rebuild it, uh, to consolidate, uh, uh, to, to have an official army, uh, and to fight all non-state actors. Uh, so this is a very important distinction because it is a matter of legitimacy. Let's let's. I'm going to challenge you on that for a second mm -hmm. because we have to have the. Uh, I'm not trying to act as as the the ambassador for the other government. No, no, no. Please, but please. You have always... you do have the United Nations mm -hmm. backing a unity government that's in Tripoli. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So so here's the thing: the people of Libya in mm -hmm. elections chose a parliament which now part and parcel exists mostly in Gaza. Mm -hmm. But you have international actors, including some with the United States. I mean, yes, there's been efforts mm -hmm. to back Haftar a little bit, but but Haftar's mm -hmm. forces have made mistake after mistake. Mm -hmm. And the UN is recognizing another entity. So so how do these two conflicting narratives mesh? And what's being no. done to bring them together? Uh, hold on. Uh, let, we're going to backtrack. Um, uh, we're going to backtrack. So what happened, and this is a very important discussion to have, and, and I'm glad you brought up this point, because there are so many facts that need to be uh, uh, cleared up. So this is what happened in 2014 after the elections happened. So the international community did not know what to do. Uh, we have a problem. We have uh, fighting in uh, in Tripoli. Uh, we have armed groups uh, fighting the, the parliament. What to do? And this is where you have the Libyan political agreement coming in 2015. So the international community came together and said, uh, well, we're going to create a unity government, uh, also known as uh, the government of national accord. And here is, and, and this is something that needs to be explored, explored uh, much further so people can truly understand the nature of the conflict in Libya. The LPA was a very much ill-conceived uh, agreement, which actually set the scene of what's going on today. So the international community, instead of saying, and this is my opinion, of course, instead of saying, here we have an elected parliament. Finally, you know, after so many uh, uh, decades of tyranny, uh, Libyans uh, had their second elections, they elected a parliament, Let's support the democratically elected parliament. That would have been the normal thing to do. Instead, uh, the LPA, and I think one of the reasons was uh, a lot of foreign officials were really uh, feeling anxious and, and urgent about the threat of ISIS, and they, and they really rushed this process. So they come up with the LPA, and instead of saying that we're going to support the elected government, we're going to have a unity government uh, where even losers are included. So they create this GNA. Uh, 
uh, and the process, uh, and it was foreign appointed, it was appointed by the EU in a process that is still not clear to Libyans. Like, I don't know how the GNA was selected. Uh, so this is, a, so we have a government that was literally parachuted uh, into Tripoli, uh, appointed through processes that are not transparent and unknown to Libyans. Uh, there's a, I'm still trying to find out, I mean, if there, anybody knows how this process uh, came about, I, I'd love to know, as would most Libyans. So you have this GNA, but even the GNA was a unity government uh, that was supposed to exist only for one year and for the purpose of disarming the militias uh, in Tripoli. Uh, so the LNA did not have too much, not to get into too much minutia, but um, mm -hmm. some would argue that former UN Libya envoy Martin Cobbler mm -hmm. was mm -hmm. responsible for getting all of these, you know, disparate militias that had been holding different neighborhoods in Tripoli. Mm -hmm. um, they were trying to 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 get this UN mediated agreement. That was, um, you know, not parachuted on them per se, but an mm -hmm. alliance of those who would otherwise be trying to kill each other. Now, others say that Haftar is the odd man out because the parliament, and you're talking about the Tobruk parliament that gave him the mandate for the Libyan National Army, correct? No, there's, there's no, to me, there's no, that's what I'm trying to emphasize. There's no Tobruk parliament. The seat, the physical seat is in the Tobruk parliament because Tripoli was so violent. Uh, that's no, why but, there's only but, one parliament. For lack, for lack of a of a better word, mm -hmm. the, the, yes. the democratically elected parliament. Yeah. So this is so this is the this is the parliament that's internationally uh, recognized. So what happened? So so we have the GNA now, uh, which was created by the Libyan Political Agreement. So this is a so there were uh, uh, individuals that were appointed, not elected, and this to me uh, this is an important uh, question of legitimacy that Libyans struggle with to this day. And it was created for one year for the purpose of disarming the militias and to kind of consolidate and bring different actors together. Uh, so this is for one year. Uh, they failed and their mandate had expired. And uh, rather, and this is this is the whole problem right now. So the GNA is, uh, the GNA in addition to failing in its mandate, there's a clause in the LPA that says, well, we're gonna select these group of individuals. They need to be approved of by the elected parliament. The the, uh, the GNA needs to be ratified by the elected parliament. Rejected by the parliament. And they were never ratified. <laughs> okay. So this well, is a I, I huge do, I crisis. Need back, I need to push back just one little mm -hmm. more. Go ahead. <laughs> My notes that I have here. You're talking about the democratically elected uh, parliament of Libya by the Libyan mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. The election yep. turnout was 18%. Do you think that a parliament that only represents 18% of voters and, and, and another 82% of the population that didn't vote? Yeah, yeah. Uh, not at all. <laughs> I think you're, you're, maybe your figures aren't correct. No, maybe. The statistics, mm -hmm. statistics, and damn mm -hmm. line, right? But, mm -hmm. but, uh, no, the 2014 elections were uh, UN-observed. Uh, they were legitimate, and they were accepted by the international community and the living people. So the problem, so what we have here, so you can imagine the, the crisis of legitimacy we have when uh, when Libyans are told that, okay, you've, you've had your elections, but we're not going to respect your elections because you didn't choose the right people because Islam is lost. <laughs> and this is, this is something that it's ironic and it is, it's tragic at the same time. Uh, tech, and this is this is the crux of the matter. So even the LPA, though, understood that you cannot parachute uh, randomly selected individuals, and they had to be accepted. They had to be ratified by the parliament, and that never happened. Uh, so we have an entity today uh, that is uh, unratified, expired, and unelected. Okay. Uh, I, so we have three. We have three minutes left. 
All right. Okay. So, so what so I, let me, so, I, I want to do I'd like you to focus on mm -hmm. how does Libya move forward? Well, we need to move forward with elections. Uh, we need to have uh, security everywhere, not just in the east, but in Tripoli as well. Uh, since 2014, Tripoli has been occupied by a variety of militias, which are now being co-opted by the GNA as a survival uh, uh, mechanism. So we can't have a capital of a country uh, that is captured uh, by militias and state in institutions that are captured by militias. So th the solution, and I think the international community must help in this, uh, is is to uh, help uh the legitimate armed forces uh, to disarm the militias, to help Libya with its borders, to help with security building, institution building, uh, anti-corruption efforts uh, with judiciary and, and, and the fiscal system in Libya. And these are all things that need to be done. And all these things depend on a secure and safe Libya, uh, where there's no weapon saturations, where militias aren't uh, allowed to roam around freely uh, persecuting uh, citizens. And uh, this is definitely an elections. I cannot, uh, I cannot um, emphasize elections enough. Yeah, I, I think there is a, a plan now, at least for 2020, that there will be an election for president. Uh, I think uh, there's a well, uh, there's definitely a plan for 20. I, I'm not sure when this will happen uh, because this keeps uh, getting postponed uh, depending on the security issue. But uh, I'm, I'm sure as soon, because you, you can't have like, last year you had the election uh, offices in Tripoli being bombed once elections, once elections were announced. You can't have elections under this context. So definitely uh, once uh, the country is secured and people have the safety to vote, uh, the next step is definitely uh, elections. I can't tell exactly when that will happen, but I know the entire country wants elections as soon as do, possible. Do you see yourself going back to Libya? Maybe, maybe. Uh... I'd love to go back to Benghazi. I would love to go back to Benghazi. I'd love to see uh, a Libya where everybody, uh, different groups are tolerated and there's no persecution and we can develop and uh, use our resources wisely. Uh, definitely, I see myself back in Benghazi. Well, let's, let's see what happens with, uh, with Haftar and the GNA and the LNA and everybody's uh, uh, different armies maybe getting together for one Libyan army. Aya, thank you for joining us. Senior thank Scott, you, Tim. Institute for European and American Studies. And just as a disclaimer, it is an uh, institution that the Middle East Forum supports. So keep up the good work. Thank you so much, Tim. Thanks for having me. This is uh, Greg Roman on Middle East Forum Radio. Oh, thank you, Greg. No, no, it's all right, Aya. It's, <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> Radio with Aya Berwela, our guest, Cliff May at the top of the hour. The last show of MEF Radio in 2019 here on WWDB, 860 AM, Philadelphia Talk Radio. I want to thank all of our staff and everyone else. Happy holidays and happy new year. Hey.